Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Scott has given me the chance last week and this week to be here with you guys, and I'm really excited to do that during Advent. For those of you who are looking for Scott today, we sent him over to Kensington, so thanks for allowing us to borrow him over there. This is actually the first chance that we've had to have Scott back in Kensington speaking since Inglewood launched, and so we're really excited for the community there to get to hear him and a bit of an update about what's happening here, which is really exciting. And hey, I get the chance to be here for a couple weeks, so that's good too. Uh, We have been in Advent for a while now, and we are moving our way through this season of waiting. But we are now sort of on the verge of the arrival of the Christ child. We have next Sunday and then, of course, Christmas Eve together. And that means the anticipation is high for that. And hopefully you'll be able to join us on Christmas Eve. If you haven't got tickets yet, you can head to commons.church slash Christmas. You can do that on your phone right now. It's fine. Do it right now. I won't be offended. Pick a service that works for you. And the tickets are, of course, always free. You don't actually need a ticket to come to church. But this just helps us to ensure that we have seating at each of the services. We will make room for everyone, though. It's going to be a great time. It's a one-hour service that's meant for the whole family to experience it together. And just one more plug before we get rolling here today. Uh, We are getting close to the end of the year, and that means for a lot of us... I don't think that was supposed to happen. Um, We are... There we go. Let's see if we can slide that back in. There we go. Um, That means for a lot of us, we're thinking about year-end donations. And you can make a donation for the 2018 tax season right up until the end of the year. There is a service here on December 30th, so you can always use the debit or credit terminal at the back. But if you go online at commons.church slash donate, uh, you can make a donation right until midnight on December 31st that will be counted for this tax year. We deeply appreciate your support, uh, both of our Advent campaign and the normal work that we do at Commons. A significant part of our budget always comes in during December, so thanks for that generosity. And if you have given before, our 2018 donor report is available now. We really want to be transparent and let you know what we do with the finances in the church. And so if you head to commons.church slash donate, you can read that about everything that's happened this year. Now, this series is called Unexpected. And we've called it that because we've wanted to try a different approach during this season where we are used to rehearsing familiar stories. And that's because it's sometimes it's good to go back and retell stories. I talked at the start of the series last week about the importance of learning to reread and retell stories that we've heard before. In fact, we took uh, new inspiration from the gospel writers who they go back and they retell their old stories with new intent. And there's something really beautiful about realizing what they are doing when they read Isaiah. That they see in the arrival of Jesus a version of a story that they have already known. That God is with us because God has always been with us. And I love that image of the gospel writers learning about the birth of Jesus and then going, wait a minute, we already know this story. This is a story that we've heard since we were kids. This is a story that we've trusted since before we can remember. We've believed this story about God being with us. But now, now we know it in a completely new way. 
And so our hope is that we, as we tell and retell some of these stories that we have heard before, we can uncover a bit of that sense of rediscovery for ourselves. Now that said today, we are gonna read a story that is not generally a Christmas story, at least not traditionally, but it is one that I hope will invite us to reconsider the impact and the enormity of the advent of the Christ and what it means for us. So we'll begin by reading from the Gospel according to Luke. And then today we're going to spend some time going back and looking at the source material here, which is again from the prophet Isaiah. Now, this is Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 22. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because the Spirit has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Who are we, gracious God, that you should come to us, and yet you have visited your people and redeemed all things through your Son? As we prepare to celebrate this birth, Would you make our hearts leap for joy at the sound of your word? Would you move us by your spirit to notice your wonderful works around us? Would you touch us by your grace so that we might become aware of your welcome extended to us this day as we rehearse old stories and we remember old tales? Would you bring new life to our imaginations? Would you show us new things and breathe new life into us? Would you remind us that you still make all things new again? And all of this we ask through the Christ whose coming is certain, whose day draws near, and whose brilliance is already shining if we choose to see it. In the gentle name of the one we await, we pray. Amen. Okay. Today, we have a surprisingly full day and a lot to get through in this sermon, but I did promise an Eton story before Christmas, and so have a look at this. What is it time for now? Um, Should we go back to bed? No, all his presents. Oh. Amazing! Another 
All right, so this morning, I had asked my son if it was okay if I showed a video of him, and they threw it on the screen in the rehearsal this morning, and my son looks up and he says, finally, a video of me, and I thought, come on, buddy. You get a lot of screen time around here. But anyway, I don't know if you're a parent, but the thing that I have found is, uh, at this age at least with my son, there is absolutely nothing that could disappoint my son on Christmas morning. It does not matter. We could literally wrap empty boxes, and if he got to tear through wrapping paper to discover them, that would be enough for him. He would be ecstatic about this. And in fact, it makes me feel like we overspent last Christmas, considering the fact he was so excited excited to uncover old boxes that we had used to wrap new presents, we should have just given him those. By the way, speaking of overspending, um, I think that I was brought up right. Uh, My parents did not go crazy at Christmas. Uh, We got presents, and we were looked after very well, but my parents actually maintained a level of modesty around Christmas that I grew to appreciate as I got older. And yet now that my parents are grandparents, it's like all bets are off and any of the choices that they made when they were raising children are gone. They've just decided we don't have to live with this monster that we're creating and so they are going nuts with presents this year. Uh, Boxes started showing up at our house in September with instructions on how to wrap them and what order to open them and I have just started taking some of them and putting them in the attic and saving them till his birthday. So don't tell them that. But here's the thing. There is something about realizing that the story is even better than you remember it. And sometimes all that it takes for that to happen is to see it through someone else's eyes. And my son has definitely done that for me when it comes to Christmas. And honestly, if you find yourself a little bit cynical at this time of year, spend five minutes with a five-year-old. It will help. You can borrow mine, uh, take him home for the day. But part of what I love about Jesus is the way that he continually challenges me to see ancient stories with new eyes. And our scripture today might not sound like a Christmas story yet, but my hope is by the end of our time today, Jesus might help us see it in a new way. And we started reading from Luke, but let's go back there to pick up a couple things before we go even farther back to see where this scripture comes from in the the prophet Isaiah. Because in this short passage, Luke is doing a lot here. Uh, First, we read that Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Uh, And he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. And that's because what immediately precedes this moment is Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. And that is a fascinating story in itself. Now, we did a series called Anxiety a couple of years ago, about two years ago, I believe, where we looked at the temptations of Christ and how each of those temptations are archetypes in some sense. They represent some of the most common sources of anxiety and fear in our lives as human beings. But the temptation narratives are really about situating Jesus in this human story. In the Bible, we get writers like John who really want us to know that Jesus is divine. We also get writers like Matthew and Mark and Luke who really want us to know that Jesus is human. And of course, Christianity is built on this idea that you can have both. In fact, if there's anything that you take from Christmas, it should be the sacredness of the human experience. 
Uh, the theologian Karl Rahner, one of my favorites, once wrote that if God became human, then it should be impossible for humanity to speak lowly of themselves. Because to speak lowly of yourself is to speak lowly of God because God became one of you. And so when we read about these little pedestrian moments like Jesus returning home to Nazareth or going to the synagogue as was his custom or even being tempted, all of these moments, they're not just filler. Uh, Luke isn't getting paid by the word when he writes. Luke wants us to see ourselves in some of these prosaic moments of Jesus' life so that we can come to see ourselves in some of the more profound ones as well. And this is so core to the Christmas season, that the divine becomes human, not so that humans might become gods, but so that we might become aware of the divine breath that animates us always. Remember, this Christmas, before you are anything else, you are made in the image of God. And right now, you carry within you the divine breath. And God being born just like you were, this is meant to remind you of this. And I know that the excess of Christmas can make us all feel less than at times. But hear me, Christmas and the birth of Christ, this should remind you of just how extra you are. But Jesus comes home. And he goes to church and he walks to the front and he picks up a scroll and he begins to read. But what he doesn't read is not what you might expect. And if you remember the last time we talked about Isaiah, uh, last week we talked about first and second Isaiah and about how the first part of the book is largely dealing with the threat of war on the horizon. Uh, God's presence with God's people in that moment of anxiety and not knowing what's coming. And how the second half of the book is about the experience of exile in the present and that pain of feeling forgotten and how God comforts God's people as they look forward to restoration. Well, this quote, uh, this start of the story that Jesus quotes from here in Luke 4 is from the part of the story of someone who has experienced exile for more than a generation now. They have been conquered and humiliated and depressed and this person has been born into this and yet they still hope for something new. And this is what the prophet says in Isaiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. God has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captors and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. Now, right away, we have an interesting anomaly here, right? Uh, because when Jesus reads from the prophet, he says he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops and he closes the scroll and he rolls it up and he hands it back. He puts it away. He sits down and he says, today it is fulfilled. There's a couple ways that we can deal with that and we'll get there. But before we look at what Jesus leaves out, we have to look at what he adds in here. Because there are a couple more changes that Jesus makes that are a little more subtle, but they are no less significant to how Jesus sees himself. 
And the first change that Jesus makes is that the Isaiah version of the text says that the Messiah has come to proclaim a freedom for the captors and release from darkness for the prisoner. That's the NIV. In the ESV it says, an opening of the prison doors to those who are bound within. Jesus, when he reads it, says, I have been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. And this is a really interesting change because it really comes down to your method of interpretation. What's happening here is that in the Hebrew of Isaiah, the second half of this passage says something like, and to the bound opened liberation. And in Hebrew, it's sort of a peculiar little phrase. It's very uncommon. But in the context of proclaiming freedom to prisoners, you would probably assume that that means something like opening the prison doors. It's exactly why the English Standard Version goes with that. So the question then is, where is Jesus getting this recovery of sight for the blind bit? And the answer is, He's actually doing something really fascinating here. We have to remember that the context for second half of Isaiah is a group of people who've been born into exile. And they are subject to a ruler that oppresses them, and they are longing for their freedom and sovereignty. Where have we heard a story like that in the Hebrew Scriptures before? Well, that was way back in Exodus, right? I remember that whole story about the Hebrews being in slavery in Egypt and they cry out to God and God hears their cries and God sends Moses to lead them out of oppression and into a new future. Well, the most famous use of this phrase that shows up in Isaiah is in Exodus. And it's used twice there. And both times it's used in the context of opening the eyes of the blind. And so what Jesus does is he chooses the most expansive interpretation he can find. And he takes the meaning of this phrase that comes from Isaiah and he drags it all the way into Isaiah. So he finds the meaning from Exodus and he drags it all the way into Isaiah. And he reads this passage and he sees not just this particular moment of what's happening for the prophet here in Isaiah, but instead he sees the entire long story of God laid out before him. And this is a really incredible moment because it means that Jesus sees himself not just as the fulfillment of some ancient prophet's longing for a Messiah, but instead, Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of the entire long story of God. Sometimes we talk about how the people of Jesus' day imagined the Messiah coming as a political or a military figure. Well, this is Jesus reinterpreting the prophet on the fly to say, actually, it's so much more than you think it is. Because to proclaim a freedom for the prisoner today in this moment here is actually to tell the story of the God who has always been on the side of the oppressed. Who has always been working for justice. Who always hears the cries of those who struggle to understand why this is happening to me. The God who has always come and met with those who 
who are lost in their grief. In other words, Isaiah imagines the Messiah in his particular moment of history. And the people in Jesus' day want a Messiah who will be present in their particular moment in history. And Jesus says, actually, guys, God is present, the Messiah is present, the Christ is present in every moment where freedom triumphs over captivity. And wherever grace overcomes violence, wherever peace floods in to replace fear and anxiety and pain, in every moment where things are made new, the Christ is come. And so what happens is that our Bibles tend to translate Isaiah in the context of the immediate moment, which is correct. But Jesus reads Isaiah in the context of the big story of God, which is in some ways even more correct. Because every time the world becomes more beautiful and equitable and generous, this is not just nice. This is the advent of the divine appearing. And your participation in those moments, whether it is a kind word you extend or a generous gift that you make or a realization of how you can be a better version of yourself, maybe it's the choice to challenge the unfairness of the world for someone who is near you. This is actually the coming of the Christ that we wait for at Christmas. And before we get to what Jesus leaves out of the passage, there's one more piece that Jesus adds in. Because while the original passage from Isaiah says, to proclaim freedom for the captors and to open the prison doors, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus slips in a line here about setting the oppressed free. Now, it's very much on theme, and so it doesn't stand out very much, but what's interesting is that this is actually another line from the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 58, the prophet writes, Is this not the kind of fasting that God has chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke that binds them? So, very similar type of passage, but watch this. The prophet continues. He says, Is the fast God wants not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And that when you see the naked, you clothe them, that you do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. And what's interesting here is that on the surface, Jesus has taken a passage about setting prisoners free, changed it to the recovery of sight for the blind, and then added back in another line about setting the oppressed free. That seems kind of redundant. Except that when we take the context of Isaiah 58, we can see Jesus is doing something very purposeful here. Remember, the original context of Isaiah 61 is the oppression of the prophet's people by a military superpower. So when Jesus starts, he's talking about all those who suffer under unjust systems. Then he adds a reference from Exodus He reminds us about the divine plan to heal all things. 
that God is present even to our physical pain in our bodies, now he adds a reference to Isaiah 58. And this one, this one is really about those that we have lost sight of, isn't it? I mean, Isaiah 58 talks about setting the oppressed free, but it rails against those who do not open their homes and their tables and their hearts to the stranger. These are not political prisoners here. These are not those who need healing. These are travelers and foreigners. These are those who experience homelessness and isolation. These are those who are excluded from within the community that should have been the ones to embrace them with open arms. In other words, freedom for the oppressed is blessing to those that we have turned our backs on. So, with three little lines here, Jesus is turning a very familiar passage from Isaiah into something like a reading list for his audience. It's actually Isaiah 61 and the treatment of political prisoners. It's Exodus 4 and the blessings of God on all people. It's Isaiah 58 and the responsibility of the community of God to embody the story of grace now. And I know that it can be hard for us to make sense of all of that? Like, are we really supposed to get all of that meaning from these few short words? But we have to realize that these people that Jesus is speaking to are steeped in these stories from birth. Like, this is their cultural world. It's where they drew their shared imagination from. And so, the same way that I could say something like, don't be a Grinch, and you would immediately know not just what I meant, but the entire story that Theodore Seuss Geisel wrote some 70 years ago would flood your imagination. Or the way I could talk about Kevin McAllister, and especially at this time of year, you would all now have images of a child defending his home all alone. That would come to mind. Or perhaps the way that I could bring up the greatest Christmas movie of all time, and all of a sudden Bruce Willis jumping off the top of a building with a wall of flame behind him is what you picture. Die hard for those of you who haven't seen it. That's what cultural memory does for us, right? We share the references. And it allows us to bring an entire constellation of ideas to bear with just a few simple words. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's saying this memory isn't just a memory. It's part of the ongoing story of God. And you are part of the ongoing story of God. And all of it finds new meaning here with me today. Because this story according to Jesus, is just getting started. And if that sounds a little bold, that's because it is. For Jesus to say this, it's shocking and it's subversive and it's transformative, not least of which because after Jesus says this, he sits down. And so what do we do with that? This deliberate act of exclusion on Jesus' part. And as Isaiah says, I have been anointed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. And Jesus says, yes and no. And at this point, we should not be too surprised at Jesus reinterpreting the Hebrew scriptures for us. And we've seen him do it already today. And one of his favorite sayings throughout the Gospels 
is to take one of these ancient passages and say, you have heard it said, but now I tell you. And so bringing new and fuller meanings to the text, that's sort of right up Jesus' alley. But at the same time, in Matthew 5.18, he says that not one jot or tittle will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So you should be careful here. But the key for me is in the language that Jesus uses as he closes this scroll. He says to his audience, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In fact, in that same passage from Matthew I just referenced, there Jesus says, I have come not to destroy, but to fulfill. Same word. So, this is kind of a theme for Jesus. The Greek word that he keeps using over and over again in the scriptures is the verb plero. And fulfill is actually fine. In fact, that's exactly what it means. The only problem I have with fulfill is that fulfill kind of makes plero sound like it's a word that has something to do specifically with a prophecy. Like you fulfill a prophecy or you fulfill someone's expectations, but that's not exactly what plero means. Because what plero means is simply to fill up to the top or to finish, or to complete. And over and over again, throughout the Gospels, Jesus says, I've come not to destroy, not to abolish, not to bring vengeance or judgment, but to fill things up. To fill up the story. To finish the narrative. To complete what God started when God's breath first entered into humanity. And yes, there's been violence along the way. And yes, there's been pain in the past. And yes, there's been vengeance that's been attributed to God. But that's not how the story fills up. Because you see, as long as there has been a people of God, there have been people who believed and pleaded and prayed and longed for the day that God would make all things right. Not Israel, not just Judah, not just those on the right side with the inside track, but all things, everything made well. And the restoration of political prisoners, the healing of those who suffer in their bodies, the repair of communities that have become insular and lost sight of their purpose. All of this would be made right and the advent of the Christ and the fulfillment of this long story, the central focus of the entire Christmas season is bound up in the realization that the way God chooses to heal the world and the way that God will make things right and the way that God's vengeance against evil is enacted is that Christ would join us in the story and refuse to let the darkness corrupt them. You see, Christmas is about the fact that God could be one of us and still not turn against us. That God could experience all of the hurt and the pain and the injustice that the prophets did. 
but come to a new conclusion. A divine conclusion that love will heal the universe. And that when the long story of God is finally filled up and complete, the victory of God will be one that you and I and the prophets could barely even dream of without God. Because everything that we thought we knew about God, all of it is changed at Christmas. It's where old stories are brought to new completions. And incomplete imaginations are fully filled up and God's love is finally made complete. And so my prayer is that you might experience this Christmas and you might be filled up. That you might work for justice, that you might comfort the afflicted, that you might open your table to those in need this season. And that as you do, you might begin to see the hope of the ages now fulfilled in a way we never expected to see in the advent of the Christ. Let's pray. God, for all the ways that you take old stories and incomplete imaginations and images of you that are if seen through a glass darkly and now you make them real and clear and visible to us as you come to us. We thank you. God, may this image of who you really are in the Christ, may it change us, may it transform us, may it sink somewhere deep into our bones so that every action we take in conversation, in generosity, in transaction, that all of it might exude this incredible conviction that love will heal the universe. And that you have come into the story that you've experienced our hurt and our grief and our isolation and none of it changed you. It didn't corrupt you. It didn't make you angry or mad. It made you love us even more. And so God, may we experience that love this Christmas. May it change us and shape us. And may we then share this story with those for us in the gentle, loving name of the one we await. We pray, amen.